Circus Maximus is a thrilling equestrian adventure set during the early days of the Roman Empire. Annalise is well qualified to write about these subjects. She grew up riding horses and was inspired by Enid Bagnold's National Velvet. She studied classics at Cambridge where she gained a PhD and has written a history of the women of the Roman Empire. She's also written a crime novel for adults set in ancient Rome. Annalise teaches Latin to school children. Annalise, a warm welcome to you and thank you for joining me in the reading corner today. The book is about a year old Dido whose father is a trainer in one of the factions of Roman charioteers. There are four of them, aren't there? The reds, the whites and the greens. And Dido and her father are in the green faction. I won't say too much at this point, but there comes a point in the story where something So maybe I should ask you to take over the story at that point. Tell us what the inciting moment is in in the story. So we meet Dido, as you say, she's 12 years old. Her father, Antonius, is the head trainer for the Green Faction, which, as you say, is one of the four main racing factions. And she has grown up around horses. She's grown up being allowed by her father to roam free. Her father was an ex-charioteer, so she's inherited his skill with horses And her mother, whom she's never known, who died when she was a baby, was also a great horsewoman. So she's got horse whispering in her blood. And we meet her in the first scene in the book. She's desperate to win untamable stallion that she's seen at a stable they visited. And she manages to win him despite her father's reservations. And we see her in the first part of the book training this horse and building up a relationship with this horse. The world of chariot racing was a dangerous one. It was a incredibly competitive and cutthroat one. And one night Dido sees something that she shouldn't. She sees something that is evidence of corruption at the heart of the sport. And it results in her having to go on the run, basically, and having to flee her home, having to flee Rome, having to leave behind this horse that she loves and to go into pastures unknown. She doesn't know where she's going to end up. And she also knows that these powerful men are on her tail and are going to be trying to find her. And so we then see her seeking refuge somewhere and she ends up meeting somebody. She's not sure if it's the person she should trust, but she has no other choice. And they turn out to be somebody who is prepared to help her live her dream, which has always been to be a charioteer, to race at the Circus Maximus, which is the great Wembley Stadium times a million of the ancient world, a world that is, however, barred to women. As a girl, she's grown up knowing that she won't be able to to race chariots. But the story then follows how she is able to try and at least pursue that dream, but all the while with the danger of knowing that there are these people still trying to find her. It's a very compelling story. It's a real page turner. And I did get the impression as I was reading it that possibly what you were doing was living through some of the loves of your life, as in horses, and as in the classical Roman period. You're absolutely right. So I was born in Bermuda and we lived there till I was eight. And my mother, I think, had always had frustrated dreams of being able to own a horse when she was little. So as soon as my brother and I were old enough, she arranged for us to have riding lessons at the local stable. And so initially that was in Bermuda. We used to go riding on the beach 
they weren't too fussy about wearing helmets there as well. So you very much had the wind in your hair experience. And then we came to England and we were living in the country and we joined the Pony Club because it seemed like the thing that everyone did. And so my brother and I both spent our early teens having the privilege and joy of riding horses. I was a very shy, very introverted child, and I would lose myself in horse and pony stories. So I was reading the Pulling Thompson Sisters and the Jill books by Ruby Ferguson. And I think what I loved about all those stories was they were very often about girls who were maybe a bit marginalized, maybe a bit different, maybe found it hard to connect Mm -hmm. with other people, but they found a solace and they found a companionship and a sense of adventure in horses. And that was something that I related to. And so I, I have huge nostalgic affection for those stories in that period in my life. And then the Romans took over. I discovered at school that I enjoyed Latin and I enjoyed studying the Romans. And so that kind of superseded. And I've always loved sport as well, sometimes to do myself, but actually mainly just to watch. I find myself getting intensely caught up in some sort of moment of sporting drama. And ever since reading National Velvet, I've always longed for the day when a female jockey would do what Velvet does and would ride a horse to victory at the Grand National. And it still, to my intense frustration, has not happened. And I I was actually watching a Formula One motor race one day. It probably surprises people that I like Formula One because anyone who's seen me drive knows that I drive intensely slowly. And I also didn't like riding horses fast either. But I love Formula One. And I think I was watching a Formula One race. And I was thinking also about the fact that there's not been women competing at that level in, in Formula One motor racing. And it was just watching that one day. And I just suddenly had the image of a girl living in ancient Rome, dreaming of horses and dreaming of being allowed to be a charioteer at the Circus Maximus. And it all went from there. The story began with her. There was never any story without her. That seems like a really good point for us to hear some of the story. Okay, I'm going to read a little bit from the very first chapter. And this is where we see Dido showing off her horse whispering skills. She's just raced this boy at this stable where she and her father have gone to visit. And the stake in the race was that she should, if she won, she would get this horse. And her father, when he realizes this, is not too keen. But this is where we see Dido meeting this horse for the first time. I ducked under the fence and climbed the slope where the black horse was grazing. He lifted his head, watching me with nostrils flared, ears twitching. Slipping my hand into the pouch pocket of my old green tunic, I extracted a dusty handful of grain. Holding on the tips of my fingers, I whispered and cooed as I shuffled forward. A squeal escaped the horse's throat and he tossed his mane, dancing on the spot. I stopped a few paces short of his head arms still outstretched, and made the same squealing noise he had made. The little black horse stared. Then he stretched out his nose, sniffing at the grain. Blowing softly, he took a few cautious steps towards me. His upper lip brushed against my palm, and he began snaffling the grain, tickling my fingers with his whiskers. He flinched slightly when I began stroking his cheek. I don't believe it, I heard Marius say to Antonius. Can she talk to horses, that girl of yours? The fence creaked as someone climbed over it. The little horse's ears flattened against his skull. I tried to soothe him by combing his long mane with my fingers. Antonius stopped a short distance away. I knew what was coming. Dido, we didn't come all this way to Hispania to buy an untrained horse. We're not buying him. I won him. I have my orders from Ruga. The Greens need to start winning races again. 
If we're to have any chance of beating the blues, we need fully trained horses, animals that have experience at the local circuses. I'll train him. You can help me, Papa, please. And what do I tell Ruga when he asks why I've wasted a place in the boat's cargo on a horse that has never run a race, a horse whose upkeep he'll have to pay for? Tell him he had too much promise to leave behind. Tell him what Marius said about his sire. Tell him... I stopped. Even to my ears, it sounded unconvincing. I knew the master of the green faction as well as my father did. Ruga was as tight-fisted as he was wealthy. Antonius held out his hand. The lump in my throat had swollen to the size of a stone. I buried my face in the horse's neck, breathing in his warm, sweet smell. Then I let my father take my hand and lead me back to the fence. Through my tears, I could see Terry's looking at us curiously. Dido and I have a long journey ahead of us. We should set off tonight if we're to make it to Tarico in time for the morning boat. My thanks for your hospitality, Marius. Superb choice of horses, as always. I think Rugal will be especially pleased with those new chestnuts. You'll send them on? Of course, Antonius, my old friend. They'll be on the next transport over. I hope they help revive the Greens' fortunes. I hope so too, or Ruga may start looking for another trainer. There was a pause. I felt Antonius's hand tighten on mine. Out of interest, what would you take for the little black horse, Marius? My eyes went to my father's face. What I saw there made my heart almost burst with love for him. Marius chuckled. I'd say you're welcome to him, Antonius, and good luck to you if you think you can make anything of him. I won't take your money. You're too good a friend for me to cheat you. But the horse is Terry's is to give. I looked at Terry's, who glanced in turn at the little black horse. I knew that he was wondering whether he was making a mistake in giving up something someone else wanted so badly. Then his teeth gleamed. You earned him. Take him if you want him. He leaned forward and pointed to his cheek. Now what do you say? I wavered, then I planted a quick kiss on his brown jaw. The boys behind him cheered. Brilliant. Do you read a lot in your lessons? I don't, to be honest, read a, read a lot in lessons, but I have always liked reading aloud. <laughs> I've actually always found public speaking really hard, mm. which being a teacher is obviously a really weird career choice. When I do assemblies and stuff at school, which I do really like doing, I have to have everything written down. And so I've learned to read in a way that sounds like I'm not reading. So I do reading aloud. I think it's because it's safe because mm. the words are there on the mm. page for me. One of the things that really impressed me about the novel was how brilliant you are at setting the scene and the Circus Maximus itself, where this chariot racing takes place. I was just enthralled by this idea of the dolphins dipping with each circuit of the race. How much of that came from the research that you did? Because you can still visit the Circus Maximus, but you don't get a sense of what it was like. If you go to the Circus Maximus now, what is a vast public park, basically, you get a bit of a sense of the size of it, which is astonishing. The, the capacity of it, if you think of the biggest sports stadium in the world now, maybe 100,000 people can fit in it. And it's estimated the Circus Maximus, you could squeeze in as many as 250,000 people in there. Incredible space. And all of the details of, as you say, the dolphins that drop to indicate as lap counter for the audience, all of the details of what was along the, I call the channel in the book. A lot of people would think of it as the spina, which is the sort of bit down the middle. All of that is, is really meticulously researched. 
I take research really seriously. I, I used to work as a kind of professional researcher for hire after I, I did a doctorate in classics. And then my first job was I worked as a research assistant to Bethany Hughes, who has subsequently written a number of books and presented a lot of TV programs, but at the time was, was writing her first book, Helen of Troy. And I learned a lot from Bethany about really digging down into the marrow of the period that you are researching and not just thinking about all the facts and figures and all of that I take seriously, but it's also about thinking about what are the sort of sights and smells and sounds and tastes. And she was so meticulous about that. She had me going off researching musical instruments in Bronze Age Greece, just because it mattered to her to get the soundscape of that world as much as anything. So I did a lot of research on the circus itself, on the the area of Rome where the stables were. There's certain things, of course, that we don't know so much about. We actually know very little about stables in ancient Rome. So that was something that I had to just make more plausible suppositions about. But things like the charioteers themselves, what they wore, the sort of equipment they carried with them. So one of the things that's actually quite a key thing in the book is that as a charioteer, you would race with the reins of the horses wrapped several times around your middle, which of course is to give you some leverage and some control over this team of horses, which are basically dragging you around a track at about 40 miles an hour. And you're standing on something that's not much better than a skateboard, to be honest with you. So having the reins around your waist would give you control. But you would then, of course, if there was a, an accident, which happened a lot, and the Romans used to call them shipwrecks, which is, again, something that's alluded to in the book, of course, you're then going to be dragged by the horses that are, the reins are attached to. So you have to carry a knife in your breastplate to grab and to cut the reins to stop yourself from being dragged to death. So all that sort of detail I really brought in. I was keen that the book shouldn't beat you over the head with the research, that it shouldn't feel like you're getting a history lesson disguised as a novel. For me, the sort of pinnacle of Roman historical fiction is Rosemary Sutcliffe's The Eagle of the Ninth, which is incredibly gripping. But what it does is that it's really well-researched, but that never intrudes. And I wanted you to enjoy that detail and savor that detail, but not feel as though it was distracting too much from the drama of the story itself, from the characters and what was at stake for them. I wanted that to be the main thing you remember. Just to say a little bit about the period when this is set, it's Imperial Rome. It's in that transition from Tiberius to Caligula, but Caligula, if you like, is more of a, a presence in this story because of his passion for chariot racing. And Dido has an encounter with him during this story. So how did their stories come together? It was Dido that, as an image that came to me first, that was where the story began. And so then, of course, I started thinking, okay, so where am I going to situate this? Where is going to be an interesting, entertaining place in history to situate it? And I alighted upon the first century. And in the very first part of the book, it's Tiberius, who was Rome's second emperor after Augustus, who is in charge. We never actually see him. There's a certain disquiet amongst the people that he never makes appearances in Rome. But the person who is there in one of the first race scenes in the book is the young Caligula, who of course will succeed Tiberius eventually. And the reason I said it there was in that pocket of history was that Caligula is known to have been a huge obsessive fan of chariot racing. And he was known to be an obsessive fan of the Greens, of the chariot racing faction that Dido's father works for. And you can imagine that obsession might be genuinely felt, but because the Greens were by far the most popular racing faction, they were the people's team. There's something politically quite useful for Caligula in being seen to support the Greens. So we see him and I have really gone with the portrait of Caligula as an incredibly unpredictable 
unstable figure and his malign influence affects Dido's life. And she does have a personal encounter with him. He's a gift to you from history. He really is. Dido obviously is very much in a man's world. So I was really interested when the women did appear, how you'd named them. Dido obviously is a nod to Dido of Carthage. So can we talk about some of the, the names of the women characters and the kind of qualities that you associate with their namesakes? It's a really interesting question because although I've taken great pains to make the sort of historical setting for this as plausible and authentic as possible. There is no historical precedent for Dido herself in that there are no known female charioteers in the Roman world. And of course, that was the great fun for me was to imagine one into existence. And actually, Dido was not her original name. When I was first trying to think of a name for her, I wanted something that sounded snappy and sassy and easy to say. But I discarded two or three possibilities. And then part of the reason she's got a, a name that nods to Carthage is that her mother, who of course is a, you know, said she's never actually met, came from that part of the world. And I wanted a name that would nod to that heritage. And yes, Dido is famously the Queen of Carthage described in Virgil's Aeneid, who has a really, spoiler alert, has a pretty tragic ending. And there's not really any particular character traits that they share, but I just honestly thought it was a good name for Dido that would nod to that heritage. And then one of the other women in the story is a a girl called Anna. And Anna is a slave girl that that Dido meets and befriends. And Anna was the name of, in in the Aeneid, was the name of Dido's sister. So there's a little connection there. In the story, Anna leads the more conventional female life in that she is is in charge of the domestic realm. For a young girl like Dido, there weren't exactly career options in ancient Rome. Your job was to produce babies and was to be a wife and was to manage the domestic sphere. So that's the role that Anna performs. Dido's mother is called Sophonisba, and that again was the name of a famous queen in North Africa. So I don't know if I was so much consciously using the names as character templates or whatever. It was really, I liked the names, I thought they suited the characters. But what you do see, for example, there's a character called Helvia, who is again someone who occupies the quite traditional role of Roman matron. She is the wife of Otho, who's one of the other chariot racing team owners. I love Helvia, I have to say, because she has to play the role of dutiful wife and so on. But she sees so much more than she lets on. And she is really the brains behind Otho, the one with the cunning and the one who's actually seeing much more than she lets on. You're a teacher as well. Yes. And Latin. Yes. It's really interesting because there is a little bit of a resurgence of teaching Latin within state schools as well as private schools. And Some people can't see any point in teaching Latin. You're absolutely right that there are some groups. There's one called the Primary Latin Project, actually, which are doing great work going into state primary schools and giving children the opportunity to study Latin. I'm not someone who would advocate for Latin being compulsory for all, but I like the idea of people having the opportunity to study it. I came to Latin relatively late, certainly in the sort of usual scheme of things. I was 13 when I first started studying it. And I think the way that I was taught Latin has influenced my feelings about it now and the way that I try and teach it now. I think a lot of people, when you say that you're a Latin teacher, they're almost triggered. They remember their own experiences of being made to recite reams of noun endings and verb endings and so on. And they remember Latin almost as this delivery system for grammar. The way that I always saw Latin because of the course book that I studied when I was 13, it was called the Cambridge Latin course. And you didn't start off by learning a load of grammar. 
you started off by meeting characters. You started off by meeting this family who were living in Pompeii, in the city of Pompeii, in the months leading up to the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. And so you learned by reading stories and the grammar was added on. And there's a lot of people who are very critical of that approach and say, we never learned the grammar properly. But what it did for me, and it helped that I was taught by really inspiring people as well, was that it made me see Latin not as this sort of dead language or this mechanism for learning grammar, but as the language of people who really lived, who were real. And so you've come to care about these people and you've come to care about their lives and how they live and you really invest in it. And I suppose when people say to me, what's the point of studying Latin? I tend to say, do you think there's a point in learning about our past? Do you think that we should study history? And people will usually say, because we're learning about something about where we came from. And I would say, bingo, it's the gateway to learning about ancient civilizations and learning about where we come from. And I think it's got a valuable place. And it's just something that I'd like to see people have the opportunity to see if they can find themselves in it. So it's really great, isn't it, as well then, in showing us not only the roots of language, but the roots of peoples across yes, the continent. That's, yeah, completely. And actually, there's a whole conversation going on in classics at the moment about what is it that we're trying to learn from classics. We shouldn't just think of classics as being about the study of Greeks and Romans, but there's so many ancient cultures that actually all intersect with it. And there's definitely a move to make classics more inclusive and broaden it so that we're not just thinking about it in European terms, we're thinking about it in a much more interconnected way, which I think is great. Yeah, as indeed I rather suspect the ancient world was more connected Absolutely. than we Oh, could. incredibly. Very much. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> now, it, it most definitely has got legs for being a series. I'm guessing yes. maybe book number two might even be written. I don't know. Book number two, as I'm talking to you, you find me feeling quite tired because actually just yesterday I wrote the last word of the last scene of book two. And there are many of the, the characters from book one who make a return appearance. And I probably can't say too much more about that because my editor hasn't even read it. But yes, that that is due to come out at the same time next year. And then we see how we go. I certainly have other stories for Dido in mind and we'll just have to see. But it's been a joy. I wanted to write a children's book all my life. and I, But I think it, it just took me a little while to get there and discover that was probably where my true writing voice lay. And I feel this book is closer to my heart than anything I've ever written. And I just can't wait for people to read it and get to know Dido. Fantastic. So people can read Circus Maximus, Race to the Death. I do feel that we've only scratched the surface of the things that we could have talked about, but we have to save something for book two and hopefully <laughs> we'll be able to follow up with another podcast. It's I would love such that. a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank Anthony. you so much. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.